You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to episode eight of Security Unlocked. How are you? I'm doing great. We're right about at Christmas. I am feeling it in my onesie right now. You're feeling Christmas in your onesie? Are you? Is it a, <laughs> is it a Christmas onesie? No, I feel like onesies just highlight the Christmas spirit. I mean, you're in PJs all weekend. I mean, we've been in work from home for seven years now. Like, <laughs> aren't we in perpetual onesie land? Well, I mean, I try to put in effort. I don't know about you. I don't put any effort. I, I wonder <laughs> if we should issue a, like a, a subscriber challenge. I wonder if we could hit a thousand subscribers, we might make a security unlocked onesie. <gasps> I wonder what else, what other swag we could do. What would be good for a security unlocked podcast? All right. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm a little biased, but the security blanket is clever. The the ones that Microsoft gives away. I don't think I have one of those. It's a blanket with security images on it. <laughs> images of securityness. Just images of very strong passwords. <laughs> Images of two-factor authentication. <laughs> what about a horse blanket? Like a blanket that what you put that over your horse un- under the oh. saddle. Oh, I'm just following the blanket thread, that's all. <laughs> I'm just thinking of different <laughs> types of blankets. You know, on two episodes, we've already talked about the bratty pigs. I wonder if like, we could turn the bratty pigs into our mascot and on the security blanket, there could be like an animated picture of the bratty pigs, you know, <laughs> running away with a padlock and key or something. Have I not, and excuse the pun, unlocked the, the new technology in blankets, an animated picture? Is that possible in blankets now? Did I say animated? I, I meant <laughs> illustrated, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I bet you, oh, wow. I bet you there's some brand new piece of, printing technology that's over in like Japan or South Korea that we haven't got over here yet where they've got animation on their blankets. That would be good. What about one of those automatic cat feeders? You know, for when you go away on holiday and it like dumps a little bit of dry food into their bowl every 12 hours. And then we just put security unlocked on the side of it. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it has our logo on it, it fits. Oh, you know what? Also, this is our last episode for 2020. How'd you feel about it? About this episode or about the year of 2020? Well, the year of 2020 is probably too much to unpack. What about our podcast adventure in 2020? Yeah, I've enjoyed it greatly. I listened to the first couple episodes just the other day. And while they were were great, I certainly heard uh, an evolution, an evolution in just eight episodes from that humble first back in October. So yeah, I've definitely enjoyed the trip and very much looking forward to 2021. What about you? I feel like our guests are making me smarter. With each new episode, I've got a few more terms under the belt. 
terms I'd heard before, but never got that clarity from experts and what the definition is, especially as they're moving around. We see that with a lot of the machine learning and AI terms like neural networks. When we're talking to experts, they they have different lenses on what that should mean. The other thing that I found fascinating is everyone that you and I have reached out to internally, Natalia, and said, hey, do you want to be a part of this podcast? Everyone said yes. Everyone has said yeah, I'd love to share my story of how I got into security. I'd love to share my story of how I got to Microsoft. I love that we've spoken to such a incredible variety of people that have come to security and to Microsoft from just, I mean, everyone is has a completely different story and everyone's been so willing to tell it. So I'm just very, very happy that we've been able to meet these great people and have these conversations. Yes, and even in their diversity, I've I've been happy to see that there are really positive themes across the folks that want to be in security, that are in the security space. They're all so passionate about what they do and really believe in the mission, which is just great to see. And like you said, there's just awesome community, the, the fact that they want to go out and have these conversations and are always open to receiving questions from you guys. So please keep them coming. Our, our our experts are equally as hungry as we are to hear not just feedback, but questions on the topics that we discuss. So on today's episode, we chat with Maria Puertas Calvo. Fantastic conversation. Very excited to have Maria on the podcast. I'm not sure if many folks picked up, but a lot of the experts we've spoken to so far have been more on the endpoint detection side of the house. You know, we've talked to folks over in the Defender team and those sort of look at the email pipeline. Maria and her team are focused on identities. So protecting identities and protecting our identity platforms. And so she's going to talk about how AI and ML are used uh, to protect identity. And then after Maria, we talk to... Jeff McDonald. So he is a member of the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint Research team. And he's joined us on a previous episode to talk about unmasking malicious threats with AMSI and ML. And today he's chatting with us about his career in cybersecurity, which started with game hacking. So making changes in the game to get more skills, get new characters. And he's got some amusing stories as to how far he took that. But it's also a theme we're seeing across a a few of our guests that game hacking seems to be a gateway to cybersecurity. Yeah, hopefully the uh, statute of limitations on on game hacking has well and truly expired on the the, the various games that (laughs) Jeff mentions in his interviews. I hope we're not getting him in trouble. (laughs) Enjoy the pod and we'll see you all in 2021. Maria Puertas Calvo, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. If you could tell us about your role at Microsoft and what your day-to-day looks like and the team you're in, the mission and sort of scope of that work, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a principal data science manager in identity security and protection. So I lead a team of five data scientists that work within a big engineering team. And our big mission is to protect all of Microsoft's users from account compromise and other things like abuse and fraud. As a data science team, we just analyze and look through all the huge amount of data that we get from all our customer logs and everything. And then we use that to build automated statistical-based models or machine learning models or heuristic-based models that are trying to detect those bad actions in our ecosystem. So compromise attacks or malicious bots that are trying to do bad things in our identity systems. 
And Maria, we understand that your team also recently authored a blog on enhanced AI for account compromise prevention. So can you talk a little bit about what that blog entails, how we're applying AI to start solving some of these problems? Yeah, we're actually really excited about this work. This just went into production recently and it has really enhanced what we call like the bread and butter of really what we do, which is trying to prevent compromise from happening in the ecosystem. Basically, we have been using artificial intelligence and AI to build detections for a pretty long time. And everything that we do, we try to start with whatever's the long hanging fruit. We do offline detections, which are basically like using the data after authentications or attacks already occurred and then detect those bad attacks. And then we will inform the customer or make the customer reset their password or, you know, do some type of remediation. But being able to put AI at the time of authentication and to meeting that end goal that we're trying to not just detect when a user has been compromised and remediated, but we're actually able to prevent the compromise from happening in the first place. So this new blog talks about this new system that we've built. We already had real-time compromise detection, but it wasn't using the same level of artificial intelligence. So is it correct to say then that in the past, what we had been doing is identifying a known attack, a known threat, and then producing detections based on that information. And now we're trying to preempt it. So with this even more intelligent AI, we're trying to identify the threat as it's happening. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. So we did already have real-time prevention, but most of our artificial intelligence focus used to be in the after the fact. Now we have been able to move this artificial intelligence focus also to the real-time prevention. And what we have achieved with this is really improved the accuracy and the precision of this detection itself, which means now we're able to say that the signings that we say are risky, they're way more likely to actually be bad than before. Before we would have more noise and more false positives. And then we would also have some other bad activities that will go undetected. With this new artificial intelligence system, we have really increased the precision, which means now if a customer says, oh, I want to like block every single medium risk login that comes my way that is trying to access my tenant, now fewer of their real users are going to get blocked and more actual attackers are going to get blocked. So we've really improved the system by using this new AI. What's changed that's increasing the precision? Yeah, so we actually published another block with the the previous system, which was mostly using a set of rules based on user behavior analytics. So the main detection before was just using a few features of the signing itself and comparing them to the user history. So if you're coming from a new IP address, if you're coming from a new location, if you're coming from a new device, there was like a deterministic formula. We were just using a formula to calculate a score, which was the probability of how unfamiliar that signing was. Now we're taking way more inputs into account So we're using like, it depends on like which protocol you're using. It has more intelligence about the network. It has some intelligence about what's going on. For example, if you're coming from an IP address that has a lot of other traffic that AAD is seeing, it has also information about what AAD is seeing from that IP address. Does it have a lot of failed logins or is it doing something weird? And then instead of us manually setting 
a mathematical formula or rules in order to build that detection, what we do is we train an algorithm with what is called label data. So label data is just a set of authentications that are, some are good and some are bad and they're labeled as such. So we use that label data to tell the algorithm, hey, use this to learn, right? That's how machine learning works. So the algorithm trains and then it's able to use that data to decide in real time if the authentication is good or bad. Yeah, thank you. And then where, if any, do human analysts or humans in specialty roles, if it's data science or analytics, when do they come in to either verify the results or help with labeling new sets of data? So you've got your known goods and you've got your known bads, and I assume you end up with a bunch of unknowns or difficult to classify one way or the other. Is that a role for a human analyst or human data scientist to come in and create those new labels? Yeah, even though getting all these labels is extremely important, that is not really what the data scientist is not there just like classifying things as this is good, this is bad, just to get labels to feed it to the algorithm, right? What the data scientist does that is very crucial is to build the features and then train this machine learning model. So that is the part that it is actually really important. And I always really try to have everybody in my team to really understand and become a great domain expert on two things. One is the data that they have to work with. It is not enough to just get the logs as they come from the system, attach the label to it, and then feed it to some out-of-the-box classifier to get your results. That is not going to really work really well because those logs by themselves don't really have a lot of meaning. If the data scientist is able to really understand what each of the data points that are in our logs, sometimes those values, they're not coded in there to be features for machine learning. They're just added there by engineers to do things like debugging or like showing logs to the user. So the, the role of the data scientist is really to convert those data points into features that are meaningful for the algorithm to learn, to distinguish between the attack or the good. And that is the second thing that the data scientist needs to be really good at. The data scientist needs to have a very good intuition of what is good and how that looks in the logs versus what is bad and how that looks in the logs. With that double knowledge, basically knowledge of what the data in the logs mean and the knowledge of like what attack versus good look in that data, then that is the feature engineering role. You transform those logs into other data points that are calculations from those logs that are just going to have a meaning for the algorithm to learn if something is good or an attack. So I can give an example if this is very abstract. Like, for example, when I see an authentication in Azure AD logs, maybe one of the columns that I'm going to know is like IP address, right? Like every single communication over the internet comes from some client IP address, which will be like the IP address that's assigned to the device that you own at the time that you're doing an authentication. There are, you know, billions, if not trillions of IP addresses out there. And each one is just some kind of number that is assigned to you or to your device. And it doesn't really have any meaning on its own. It's just like, if you have a phone number, is it a good or a bad phone number? I don't know. That's that's not going to help me. But if I can actually go and say, okay, this is an IP address, but is this an IP address that Nick used yesterday or two days ago? How often have I seen Nick in this IP address? What was the last time I saw Nick in this IP address? If you can just like play with those logs to transform them into this more meaningful data, it's really going to help the model understand and make those decisions, right? And then you also end up with fewer things to make decisions on, right? Because 
if I just had that one IP address to train the model, maybe my, my model would become really good at understanding which IP addresses are good and bad, but only among the ones that we have used to train that model. But then when a new one comes in, the model doesn't know anything about that IP address, right? But in, if we instead change that into saying, okay, this is a known IP address versus an unknown IP address. And then now, instead of having trillions of IP addresses, we just have a value that says, is it known or unknown? Then for every single new login that comes in, we're going to be able to know if it's known and unknown. We don't really need to have seen that IP address before. We just need to compare it to the user history and then make that determination of it is known or unknown. And that ends up being much more valuable for the model. So just mapping out the journey you've talked about. So we've gone from heuristic signature-based detections to user analytics. And, and now we're in a space where we're actively using AI, but continuously optimizing what we're delivering to our customers. So what's next after this new release of Enhanced AI? What is your team working on? So... Lots of things, but one thing that I am really interested in that we're working on is making sure that we're leveraging all the intelligence that Microsoft has. So, for example, we built a system to evaluate in real time the likelihood that a sign-in is coming from an attacker. But all of that is just using the data that identity possesses, like Azure Active Directory sign-ins and what's happening in the Azure Active Directory infrastructure. But there's so much more that we can leverage from what is happening across the ecosystem, right? Like the, the user who signs into Azure Active Directory, it's probably also coming in from a Windows machine that probably has Microsoft Defender, Defender ATP installed on it, that it's also collecting signal and it's understanding what is happening to the endpoint. And at the same time, when the sign-in happens, then that the sign-in doesn't happen just to go to Azure AD, right? Azure AD is just the door of entry to everything, Azure, Office, you name it, third-party applications that are protected by things like Microsoft Cloud of Security. And all of the security features that exist across Microsoft are building detections and collecting data and really understanding in that realm, what are the security threats and what's happening to that user. So there is a journey, right, of that sign-in. It's not just what's happening in Azure AD, but it's everything that's happening in the device, what's happening in the cloud and in the the applications that are being accessed after. So we're really trying to make sure that we are leveraging all that intelligence to enhance everything that we detect, right? And, and that way, the Microsoft customers will really benefit from being a part of the big ecosystem. And having that increased intelligence should really improve the quality of, of our risk assessment and our compromise detections. Maria, how much of this work that you talked about in the blog and the work that your team does is trying to mitigate the fact that some folks still don't have multi-factor authentication. Is any of this a substitute for that? We know from our own data studies that accounts that are protected by multi-factor authentication, which means every time they log in, they need to have a second factor. Those accounts are 99.9% less likely to end up compromised because even if their password falls in the hands of a bad actor or gets guessed or, or they get fished, that second factor is going to protect them and it's way more likely to stop the attack right there. So definitely, this is not supposed to be a substitute of multi-factor authentication. Also, because of that, our alerts do not 
they still will flag a user if the sign-in was protected by multi-factor authentication, but the password was correct. Because even if there's multi-factor authentication, we want to make sure that the user or the admin know that the password was compromised so, so they're able to reset it. But the multi-factor authentication is the tool that is going to prevent that attack. And you asked earlier about other what's next and other future things. And one thing that we're also really working on is then how do we move past just detecting these compromises and with the password of using multi-factor authentication as a mitigation of this risk, right? Like the way a lot of the systems are implemented today is if you log in and we think your login is bad, but then you do MFA, that is kind of like a reassuring thing that we committed a mistake that was a false positive and that's like a remediation event. But the more people move to more MFA and more passwordless, our team is starting to think more and more of like, what's the next step? How are attackers are going to move to attacking that multi-factor authentication. It is true that multi-factor authentication protects users 99.9% of the time today, but as more people adopted, attackers are going to try to now move to get to bypass that multi-factor authentication. So there's many ways. Uh, the most popular multi-factor or second factor that people have in their accounts is telephony-based. So there's SMS or there's like a phone call in which you just approve the sign-in. There are phishing pages out there that are now doing like what it's called like a real time man in the middle attack in which you put your username and password, the attacker grabs it, puts it in the actual Azure AD site. And then, you know, now you're being asked to put your SMS code in the screen. So the attacker has that same experience in their phishing site. You put in your code and the attacker grabs the code and puts it in the Azure AD sign in page. And now the attacker has signing with your second factor, right? So two challenges that we're trying to tackle is one, how do we detect that this is happening? How do we understand that when a user uses their second factor, that is not a mitigation of the risk? It's more and more possible with time that attackers are actually also stealing this second credential and using it, right? So we need to make more efforts in building those detections. And the second really big thing is what then, right? Because if we actually detect that the attacker is doing that, then what is the third thing that we ask you? Like now you've given us a password, you've given us a second factor. If we actually think that this is bad, but it is not, what is the way for the user to prove that it's them, right? So we need to move. And I think this is extremely interesting. We, we need to move to from a world in which the password is the weak crowd and everything else is just considered good, which today it's very true. If you have a second factor, that is most likely going to be a good sign in. But in the future, we, we need to adapt to future attacks in which this won't be the case. So we need to understand what is the order of security of the different credentials and what is the remediation story for attacks that are happening with these second factors. I'd like to propose that third challenge, that third factor should be a photograph of you holding today's newspaper doing <laughs> like the floss or some other sort of, you know, dance craze that's currently... <laughs> It's currently sweeping sure. the nation. We'll we'll add it to the backlog. <laughs> I think that would that would that would that would just stamp out all identity theft and fraud. I, I think I've solved it. <laughs> you did. I think so. <laughs> I think you'll be bringing back newspapers along with it. Oh yeah, yeah. Step one <laughs> is to re- reinvigorate the print newspaper industry. That's that's the first step of my plan. But we'll, you know, we'll get there. So Maria, in your endeavors, how are you measuring success? For instance, of the new enhanced AI that your team has developed. 
Yeah, so our team is extremely data-driven and metric-driven and everything we do, we're trying to improve on one metric, right? The overall team mission really is to reduce the amount of users who fall victims of compromised account or what we call unauthorized access. So we have a metric that we all review every single day. We have a huge dashboard that is everybody's homepage in which we see like in the last three months, what percentage of our monthly active users fell victim to a compromised account. And our main goal is to drive that metric down. But that is really the goal of the whole team, including the people who are trying to make users adopt MFA and conditional access and other types of security measures. When we look into detection metrics and the ones that the AI detection metrics, we mostly play with those uh, precision and recall metrics that are also explained in the blog. So precision is the percentage of all of the detected users or detected sign-ins that you detected as bad that are actually bad, right? So it is out of everything that let's say you would block, how many of those were actually bad? So it really also tells you like how much damage you're doing to your good customers. And the other one is recall. And recall is out of all the bad activities that are out there. So let's say all the bad sign-ins that happen in a day, how many of those did your system catch? So it's a measure of how good you are at detecting those bad guys. And the goal is to always drive those two numbers up. You want to be really high precision and you want to be really high recall. So every time we have a new system and a new detection or whatever it is, or we perform improvements in one of our detections, those are the two metrics that we use to compare the old and the new and see how much we improve. And how are we getting feedback on some of those measures? And what I mean by that is the first one you mentioned, so precision. When you're saying how many were actually bad and we need to figure out how many were the true positive, how do we know that? Are we getting customer feedback on that? Or is there a mechanism within the product that lets you know that it was truly a bad thing that was caught? Yeah, so the same label and mechanisms that I was talking about earlier that uh, we need those labels to be able to train or supervise machine learning models. We also need those labels in order to be able to evaluate the performance of those machine learning models. So knowing at least for a set of our data, how much is good and how much is bad and understanding what our systems are doing to detect the good and the bad. So one of the mechanisms is, as I was talking, the manual labeling that we have in place. But the other one you mentioned is customer feedback. Absolutely. We actually, uh, one of the first thing we did when we launched Identity Protection is to include feedback buttons in the product. All of our detections actually go to like an Azure portal UX in the Identity Protection product. And admins there can see all of their risky sign-ins and all of their risky users and why they were detected as risky. You know, everything that my team is building gets to the customer through that product. And that's where the admin can click buttons like confirm safe, confirm compromise. Those are labels that are coming back to us. And users now also, there's a new feature in identity protection called My Signance. And users can go to My Signance and look at all their recent signance that they did and, and they can flag the ones that they think it wasn't done. So if they were compromised, they can tell us themselves, this was not me. So that is another avenue for us to understand the quality of our detections. And then we're extremely customer obsessed as well. So even like, it's not just the PMs in our team who have customer calls and it's the data scientists many, many times get on calls with customers because the customers really want to understand what's the science behind all of these detections and they want to understand how it works. 
and the data science teams also want the feedback and really understand what the customer thinks about the detections. If we're having false positives, why is that? It's really challenging too in the enterprise world because every tenant may have a different type of user base or different type of architecture, right? We had a time that we were tracking, we, we always track like what are the top tenants and, and what that get flagged by detections. And for example, airlines used to be a big problem for us because they had so much travel that we had a lot of false positives, right? We were flagging a lot of these people who, because they're flying all over the world, signing in from all over the world, so it would trigger a lot of detections. But that there are other customers in which this is not the case at all. Like all of their users stay put and they're just only logging in from the corporate network because it's a very protected environment. So this quality of detections and this precision and recall can really vary customer by customer. So that is another challenge that I think we need to focus more in the future. How do we tune our detections in order to make more granular depending on what the industry is or what type of setup the customer or the tenant has? Changing subjects just just a little bit, and maybe this is the last question, Maria. Uh, I noticed on your Twitter profile, you refer to yourself as a guacamole eater. (laughs) I wondered if you could uh, expand upon that. It's, you know, there are very few words in your bio, but there's a lot of thought going into those last two words. Tell us about <laughs> eating guacamole. <laughs> well, what can I say? I just really love guacamole. I think I may have added that about a year ago. I was pregnant with my twins who were born five months ago. And when you're pregnant with twins, they make you eat a lot of calories, about three 3,000 calories a day. So one of the foods that I was eating the most was guacamole because, you know, it's highly nutritious and it has a lot of calories. I went on a quest to finding the best recipe for guacamole. And okay, walk us through your best guacamole recipe. What's in it? Absolutely. So the best guacamole recipe has obviously avocado and then it has a little bit of very finely chopped white onion, like half jalapeno, cilantro and lime and salt. That's it. No tomatoes. No tomatoes. No tomato the tomatoes only add water to the guacamole. They don't add any flavor. What about then a sun-dried tomato? No liquid, just the just the flavor. Is that an acceptable compromise? Absolutely not. <laughs> <gasps> no wow. tomatoes in guacamole. And like the the best way to make it is you first mash the jalapeno chile with the cilantro and the onion almost to make a paste. And then you mix in the avocado and then you finally drizzle it with some lime and salt. Hang on. Did you say garlic or no garlic? No garlic. (gasps) Onion. No garlic. (laughs) Oh, I see. So the onion is the sort of substitute for that sort of, I guess that's savoriness. I don't know how you classify. What's garlic? Is it umami? I don't know what the... The profile, flavor profile, but no garlic. Wow, I'm making I'm making guacamole wrong <laughs> at my house. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Maria's famous guacamole recipe. I think we'll have to publish this on the Twitters as a little uh, Easter egg for this episode. It'll be Maria's definitive guacamole recipe. <laughs> now the secret is out. Well, Maria, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic chat. I think I have a feeling we're going to want to talk to you again on the podcast. I think we'd we'd love to hear a bit more about your personal story, and I think we'd also love to learn more about some of the the AI techniques that you talk to us about. But thank you so much for your time. Yes, of course. This was a pleasure. I had a great time and I'll come back anytime you want me. Thank you. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today, we're joined by Jeff McDonald. 
who joined us on a previous episode Unmasking Malicious Scripts with Machine Learning to talk to us about anti-malware scan interface, or AMC. Thank you for joining us again on the show, Jeff. Yeah, thank you very much. Really enjoyed being here last time and excited to be here again. Great. Well, why don't we start by just giving a quick refresher to our audience. Can you share what your role and day-to-day function is at Microsoft? I lead a team of machine learning researchers, and we build our machine learning defenses for Microsoft Defender antivirus product. So we build lightweight machine learning models, which go into the antivirus product itself, which run on your device with low memory and low CPU costs for inference. We also deploy a lot of machine learning models into our cloud protection platform, where we have clusters of servers in each region around the world, so that when you're scanning a file or behavior on your device, it sends metadata about the encounter up to our cloud protection in real time to the closest cluster to you. And then we do real time running of all of our machine learning models in the cloud to come back with a decision about whether we should stop the behavior or attack on your device. So we're a small team of probably about five of us. We're a mix of threat researchers and machine learning and data science experts. And we work together to design new protection scenarios in order to protect our customers using machine learning. Jeff, when you go to you know, a security conference, some kind of industry get together, do you describe yourself as a machine learning engineer? What do you use when you're talking to other security professionals in your field? Like, is machine learning, is it sort of an established sort of subcategory or is it still sort of too nascent? Yeah, like I used to call myself maybe a threat researcher or a security researcher when I would present at conferences and when I would introduce myself. But I would say nowadays, I'd I'd be more comfortable introducing myself as a data scientist because that's my primary role nowadays. Although I come from a very strong background in the security and security research aspect, I've really migrated to an area of work where really machine learning and data science is my primary tool. What's driven that change? What prompted you to go deeper into data science as a security professional? So when I first started at Microsoft, I was a security researcher. So I would do a reverse engineering of the malware itself. I would do heuristics, deep analysis of the attacks and threat families, and prepare defenses for them. So I think learning pretty early on while doing all the research in response to these attacks, it was very clear that the human analysis and defense against all of these attacks was really not scalable to the scale that we needed. So it really had to be driven by automation and machine learning in order to be able to provide a a very significant protection level to our customers. So I think that really drove kind of the natural solution where, hey, you know, all these human resources, this manual analysis doesn't scale to where we need it to be and where we want our protection level to be. So it really encouraged finding the automation and machine learning solution paths. And I have previously had some experience with machine learning at the time. It was kind of a a natural fit where I began a lot of exploration of the machine learning in application to protecting against these threats and then pivoted into that as my primary role uh, eventually as it was quite successful. So your unique set of skills, data science and security, is one that's definitely sought after in the security space. But considering the fact that we're still trying to fill just security jobs, it's definitely a challenge. So do you have any recommendations for companies that are looking for your set of skills and can't find a unicorn like yourself that has both? And if we're looking for multiple people, how should these teams interact so that they're leveraging both skills to protect companies? When we look to fill new positions on our team, 
we try to be really careful to try to be as inclusive as possible to a lot of different candidates. So when we're posting our new data science positions where we're looking for the data science experience, like in the machine learning and data science application, you'll see in our job applications, we don't actually require cybersecurity experience for our job positions. We're really looking for someone who has a really great understanding of the data and good understanding of ML and being able to have a strong coding background in order to be able to implement these pipelines and machine learning models and try out their experiments and ideas in ways that they can implement and take them end-to-end to deploying them. So really, for people that were looking to join our team, often you don't actually necessarily have to have a background in cybersecurity for all of our positions. Sometimes we're looking for a really strong data scientist who can pick up the basics of security and apply it in a very effective way. But we would also on our team have different sets of people who are more experienced in the security background to help drive some of the product and feature and industry and security trends for the team as well. Our team currently is quite a mix of backgrounds where there's some threat researchers and there's some pure data scientists who have come from related fields who actually haven't come from a cybersecurity background specifically. I wonder if we can back it up, if we can go back in time and start with you, your story, how did you first get into security, get interested in security? Did it start in elementary school? Did it start in high school? Did it start in college? Did you go to college? Can we back up and, and, and learn about the young Jeff McDonald? I grew up in a small town near Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I guess it started with my family being a software developing family, I would say. Like my dad had his own software company. And as a result, I think we had the opportunity, we're really lucky to have the opportunity to learn to code from a young age. So we would see our dad coding, we knew that our dad coded. So we were really interested in what he was doing, and we wanted to to be able to learn and participate. When was that, Jeff? Was that, we talking 80s, 90s? So that would be, I guess, when I was probably around 10 years old would be when I'd start coding. And that would be, I guess, 96 or so. I'm trying to learn, like, was that on some cool, like, old Commodore 64 hardware, or are we, were, were we well and truly in the x86 sort of era at that point? Yeah, we were in x86 there, I do believe. <laughs> so it was just Visual Basic, which is a very simple uh, coding language, <laughs> the classic Visual Basic 6.0. We were really lucky to be able to learn to code at a pretty young age, which is awesome. And although my brother went more into... My older brother was about two years older, a big influence on me coding-wise as well. He was really into making, you might say, malware. We both had our own computers. We'd often try to break into each other's computers and do things. My brother created some very creative hacks, you can say. Like one thing I remember, he burned a floppy disk, which would have an auto run on it. And the way that I would protect my computer is a password-protected login. But back in those days, it was really, I think it was Windows 98 at the time, it really wasn't a secure way of locking your computer where you have to type in your password. You could actually insert a diskette and actually terminate, it would run the auto run and you could just terminate the active process. So my brother created this diskette and program which would automatically be able to bypass my security <laughs> protocols on my computer, which I thought was pretty funny. Is he still doing that today? Are you guys still like, <laughs> are you still, is he still red teaming you? No. <laughs> No, not a, not red teaming me anymore, luckily. <laughs> so at what point were you like, well, all of these things that I've been doing actually apply to something I want to be doing for a career? Yeah. So like, although I was in a really software development friendly household, 
my dad was really concerned about the future of software development. He was discouraging us from going into software development as a primary career path at the time. Going into university, I was mostly considering between engineering and business. I ended up going into engineering because I really liked the mathematical aspect of my work. And it is a mix of coding and math, which is kind of my two strong suits. So I went into electrical engineering program. During my electrical engineering for four years is when I really changed from doing game hacking as my hobby to doing software development for reverse engineering tools. So kind of as my hobby, I would create reverse engineering tools for others to use in order to reverse engineer applications. So I went to university in Calgary, Alberta there. And in Alberta, the primary industry of the of the province is oil and gas. It's hockey. Oh, yeah, no. hockey. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah, so in Alberta, the primary industry in the sector is really oil and gas. There's a lot of oil and gas. Pretty much all engineers, when they graduate, the vast majority go into the oil and gas industry. So really, that's what I was thinking of that I'd probably be going into after I graduate. But either way, I continued the reverse engineering tool development. I did some security product kind of reverse engineering ideas as well. Approaching graduation, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Like I loved control systems. I loved software development. I loved the mathematical aspects. And I wanted to do grad school. So then I looked at like programs and security because like my hobby of reverse engineering security I didn't really take very seriously as a career. I didn't think it could be a career opportunity, especially being in Alberta, Canada, where oil and gas is the primary sector. There's not much in the way of security industry work to be seen, as far as I could tell at the time, in the job postings and job boards. So I ended up going for a master's in control systems, continuing electrical engineering work. So basically, it's more like signal processing work, where you're doing analyzing uh, signals, doing fault detection, Basically, mount vibration sensors to rotating machines was my research. And then from the vibration signal, you're trying to figure out if there's a fault inside the motor or the centrifuge or the turbine or whatever it's attached to. And in that field, there was a lot of machine learning in the research area. So that's where I got kind of my first exposure to machine learning. And I loved machine learning, but that wasn't my primary research focus for my topic. And then approaching graduation, I started looking at jobs and I happened to get really lucky at the time that I graduated because there happened to be a job posting from Symantec in Calgary. And when looking at the requirements for the job postings, it had all of the reverse engineering tools and assembly knowledge and basically everything I was doing as a hobby had learned through game hacking and developing these reverse engineering tools. It was looking for experience in only debug assembly. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have all those skills. I can't believe there's actually a job out there for me where I could do my hobby as a career. So I got really lucky with the timing of that job posting and so began my career in cybersecurity instead of oil and gas. <laughs> so you talked about the adding sensors to parts to, I guess, oil and gas related sort of instrumentation. And then there was some machine learning involved in there. Is that accurate? And if so, can you expand upon that a little bit? I'd love to learn what that looked like. So basically there's safety of rotating machines is a big problem. There was an oil and gas facility actually in Alberta, which has centrifuges where it spins the, I'm sure I'm not using the right terminology, but it spins like some liquid containing gas to try to separate the compounds from the water, I think. And they had one of these actually, the spindle of the centrifuge broke and then it caused an explosion in the building. 
and some serious injuries. So really, it was really trying to improve the state of the art of the monitoring of the health of a machine from the mounted accelerometers to them. Two of the major approaches were machine learning, where you basically create a whole bunch of handcrafted features based on many different techniques and approaches. And then you apply like a neural network or an SVN or something like that to classify how likely it is that the machine is going to have a failure or things like that. Now, I think at the time the machine learning was applied, but it wasn't huge in the industry yet because machine learning in application to uh, signals like that was especially in convolutions, was not as mature as it is now. The area I was working on was uh, deconvolutions. A lot of machine learning models involve doing, uh, at least a lot of machine learning models nowadays would approach that problem as a convolutional neural network. The approaches that I was working on exploring was called a deconvolution approaches. So I was able to get a lot of very in-depth research into convolutions and what they underlying mean. And that has helped a lot with the latest model architectures where a lot of the state-of-the-art machine learning models are based on convolutions. So what was that, a convolutional neural network? Can you define what that is? So convolution is basically where you're applying a filter across a signal. It could be an image or it could be a one-dimensional signal. So in this case, it's a one-dimensional signal where you have, well, at least it's a one-dimensional signal if you have a single accelerometer on a single axis uh, for the machine. You think of it like the classic ECG where you have a heartbeat going up and down. It's kind of like that kind of signal you can imagine, which is the acceleration signal. And then you basically learn to apply a filter to it in order to maximize something. What filter you apply can be learned in different ways. So in a convolutional neural network, you might be learning the weights of that filter, how that filter gets applied based on backpropagation through whatever learning goal you're trying to solve. So basically, you would be learning in a typical CNN model, you might be learning something like a thousand of these filters where you're adjusting the weights of all these filters through backpropagation according to to try to minimize your loss function. I guess in my research area, I was working to maximize design a filter through deconvolution to maximize the detection of periodic spikes in the vibration signal, meaning that something like an impact is happening every cycle of the rotor, for example. Well, so convolution is a synonym for sort of complexity. So deconvolution, is that a oversimplification to say that it's about removing complexity and sort of filtering down into a simpler set? Is that accurate? I wouldn't say like it's so similar to the English language version of it. It's a specific mathematical operator that we apply to a signal. So it's kind of like you're just filtering a signal and deconvolution is sort of like defiltering it. (laughs) I would say it's my best way to describe it. Oh, right. Okay. Interesting. Defiltering it. Could you take a stab at just giving us your sort of simplest, if possible, definition of what a neural network is? Okay, a simplest stab of a neural network. Okay. And Jeff, you, you are, there's very few people I'd ask that question of, but you're, you're one of them. Okay, cool. When you look at the state of the art, you'll actually find that neural networks themselves are not widely used for a lot of the problems. So when it comes to like a neural network itself, the best way I might describe it is that it's basically taking a bunch of different inputs and it's trying to predict something. It could be trying to predict the future stock price of Tesla, for example, if they're trying to predict whether Tesla is going to go up or down. Or they could be trying to predict, especially in our Microsoft 
defender case, we're trying to predict, hey, based on these features, is this malicious or not? Is our type of application. So it's going to be taking a whole bunch of inputs like, hey, how old is this file in the world? How prevalent is this file in the world? What's its file size? And then what's the file name? Well, maybe I'll say who's the publisher of this file. Now it's going to take a whole bunch of inputs like that and try to create a reasoning. It's going to try to learn a reasoning from those inputs to whether it's malware or not as the final label. We do it through a technique called backpropagation because we have, imagine, a million encounters where we have those input features. So then we use this known outputs and inputs in order to learn a decision logic to best learn how to translate those inputs to whether it's malware or not. So we do this through a lot of compute or sometimes uh, GPUs as well in order to learn that relationship. And a neural network is able to learn nonlinear relationships and co-occurrences. So for example, it's able to learn a logic like, is it more than 10,000 file size? And is the publisher not Microsoft? And the age is less than seven days? Then we think it's 70% malicious. So it's able to learn sort of more complex logic like that where it can create AND conditions and uh, create more complex logic, depending on how many layers you have in that neural network. Do you think there's a future for neural networks? It sounds like right now you see a specific set of use cases like image recognition, but for other use cases, it's been replaced. Do you think the cases you described right now, like image recognition, will eventually be replaced by other techniques other than neural networks? I think they'll always play a role or derivatives of them will play a role. And it's not to say that we don't use neural networks at all. Like in our cloud protection platform, you'll find tons of logistic regression, single neuron models. You'll find light GBM models. You'll find random forest models. And we've got our first deep learning models deployed. So some of our feature sets have a lot of rich information to them and are really applicable to the CNN the convolutional neural network model architecture. And for those, we will have a neural network at the end of the model. So it still definitely plays its specialty role, but it's not necessarily what's driving the bulk of protection. And I think you'll probably find the same for most machine learning application scenarios around the industry, that neural network is not key to most problems and that it's not necessarily the right tool for most problems. But it does still play a role, and it definitely will continue to play a role, or, or derivatives of it. My brain's melting a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask for a definition of almost every other term, but I'm trying to hold back a bit. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been writing down like 50 words that Jeff has mentioned, like, nope, have, haven't heard that one before. Nope, <laughs> that one's new. I think, Jeff, you've covered such a lot of fascinating stuff. I have a feeling that we, we may need to come back to you at other points in the future. If we sort of look ahead more in general to your role, your team, the techniques that you're sort of fascinated in, what's coming down the pike? What's in the future for you? Where are you excited? What are you focused on? What are you going to see in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months? One of the big problems that we have right now is adversaries. So what malware attackers do is that they build new versions of their malware. Then they check if it's detected by the biggest antivirus players. And then if it's detected by 
RAV engines, what they do is they keep building new versions of their malware until it's undetected. And then once it's undetected, they attack our customers with it and then repeat. So this has been the cat and mouse game that we've been in for years, for 10 years at least. Now, what really changed about six years ago is that we put most of our protection into our cloud protection platform. So if they actually want to check against so like our full protection and especially our machine learning protection, they have to be internet connected so that they can communicate with our real-time cloud machine learning protection service. And what this means is if they want to test their malware against our defenses before they attack our customers, it means that they're going to be observable by us. So we can look at our cloud protection logs and we can see, hey, it looks like someone is testing out their attack against our cloud before they attack our customers. So it makes them observable by us because they can't do it in a disconnected environment. Originally, when we came out with cloud protection, it seems like the adversaries were still testing in offline environments. Now we've gotten to the point where so many of the advanced adversaries, as well as commodity adversaries, are actually pre-testing their attacks against their cloud defenses before they attack their customers. And this introduces a whole bunch of adversarial ML and defensive strategies that we're deploying in order to stay ahead of them and learn from their attacks even before they attack our customers. So we have a lot of machine learning and data science work really focused on preventing them from being able to effectively test with our cloud as a way to get an advantage when attacking our customers. So that's one that we have a lot of work going into right now. A second thing that I really worry about for the future, this is like the really long-term future. This is, hopefully it won't be a problem for at least another decade or two, (laughs) or even hopefully longer. But having reinforcement learning, if we have some big breakthroughs where we're able to use reinforcement learning in order to allow machine learning to learn new attacks by itself and carry out attacks fully automated by itself by rewarding it. Luckily, right now, our machine learning, our reinforcement learning state of the art is not anywhere close to the technology that would be needed to be able to teach an AI agent to be able to learn new attacks automatically and carry them out effectively, at least nowhere close to the effectiveness of a human at this point. But if we get to the level of effectiveness where we can teach an AI to come up with and explore new attack techniques and learn brand new attack techniques and carry out the attacks automatically, it could change the computing world forever, I think. (laughs) We might be almost going back to the point where we have to live on disconnected computers or extremely isolated computers somehow, but it would be kind of like a worst-case scenario where machine learning has allowed the attackers to get to the point where they can use AI to automate everything and learn new attack techniques, learn new exploits, and et cetera, entirely by itself, which would be a humongous problem for defensiveness. And there's a lot of ongoing research in this right now, but it's very much on the defensive side where, hey, we're going to use reinforcement learning to teach an attacker so that we can learn from defending against it automatically. But that hypothesis is great, but It's being created with the goal of trying to improve our defenses, but actually it's also building the underlying methods needed in order to carry out attacks automatically by itself. And I think if we get to that point, it's a really big problem for security. It's going to revolutionize the way computer security works. Well, hopefully, Jeff, you and 
your colleagues remain one or two steps ahead in that particular challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> I hope you share that, uh, that yep. goal. <laughs> Jeff, what are you and your team doing to make sure that you stay ahead of your sort of adversarial counterparts that are looking to that future? What gives you hope that the security researchers, the machine learning uh, engineers, the data scientists are hopefully, you know, multiple steps ahead of, of adversaries out there? I think our adversary situation is much better than it used to be back in the day. Back in the day, they'd be able to fully test our defenses without us even being able to see it. And now that we've forced them into the game of evading our cloud protection defenses, it allows us to observe them even before they attack our customers. So the defenses we have in place that we've already shipped, as well as a lot of what we have planned, is really going to be a real game changer into the way that we protect our customers, where we can actually protect them even before our customers are attacked. So we're in a much better defensive situation since we're able to observe them before they attack our customers nowadays. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us on today's show. Uh, As always, it was fantastic chatting with you. And like Nick said, we definitely need to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. Really love being on here. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.